The opinions expressed on The Rob Report are the opinions of the hosts, participating callers, and or listener emails, texts, and letters, and are not necessarily the opinions of WDAY or Form Communications. Welcome back. Welcome to the Rob Report 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Jeez, uh, I had something in my throat. I suppose we could say welcome back. Welcome back from the weekend. Welcome back to your work week. You have a good weekend, Ben? Had a great weekend, Rob. How about you? I had a very good weekend, yeah. took my kids down. My kids and I went on a little Saturday adventure, just kind of impromptu. We decided to, to get in the car, went down to uh, Fort Mandan. My my daughter wasn't wasn't with me uh, last week. We went down actually to Bismarck, went to the Heritage Center and everything. Well, my daughter, she was jealous. So we went down to Fort Mandan uh, near Washburn, uh, took in the, uh, they have a replica fort there, a replica Lewis and Clark fort. Okay. It's really cool. So we went down to check that out, checked out the uh, Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, stopped at the Garrison Dam. My daughter had never seen the Garrison Dam before, um, so we stopped there. We actually we missed. They have tours of the the hydroelectric power plant there, but we missed we missed the tour of the day. But yeah. uh, we were able to see the fish hatchery. Okay, which was actually surprisingly cool. The kiddos fed the fish. Um, my uh, two year old, soon to be three year old, saw a sturgeon for the first time. He was. Uh, we were leaning over the tank looking down at it, and it wasn't moving, and he couldn't see it. And all of a sudden, this giant fish moved, uh, and Cooper about Cooper about jumped out of my arms. <laughs> Scared him. And then he thought it was a crocodile. He thought it? <laughs> so, oh, he thought man. The sturgeon, he thought the surgeon was a crocodile. He thought it was, he thought it was great. Um, all right, so we got a, a good show coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about negotiations over the farm bill. Congressman Kevin Kramer um, which, by the way, maybe we should talk about this a little bit. Congressman Kevin Kramer uh, appointed to be one of the uh, the negotiators of the farm bill for the House of Representatives, right? And so basically what this is, um, the Senate has passed a version of the farm bill, and the House has passed a version of the farm bill. So what happens is, is the House and Senate have to get together and negotiate out the differences to produce a piece of legislation that both chambers can approve of. Um, it's not. It happens here in North Dakota as well. They call them conference committees, right? Where, you know, the, a, a bill will be amended between the two chambers, and so they basically got to work out, okay, whose version of this bill, or, or, or how are we going to put this together into something that that both chambers can support? Um, and so, Congressman Kramer, North Dakota's lone member of the House of Representatives, appointed to be uh, at that table along with Minnesota's uh, Colin Peterson, certainly a familiar name to this region. Um, they're, they're on the, uh, the, the negotiating bill. We're going to talk about that farm bill, uh, with Christina Rasmussen. She's the vice president for federal affairs from the foundation for government accountability. We're going to talk about that. Some of the food stamps issues or whatever, but the, the freak out last week staged by North Dakota Democrats in the, in Heidi Heitkamp's campaign over Congressman Kramer being appointed as a negotiator of this bill was nothing short of remarkable for, by the way, a politician who prides herself 
on being bipartisan, right? I re- remember they had that radio ad earlier this year, Ben, and the radio ad was works with anyone. Yep, strong right? battery that was, acid. Right, yep. that's what yep. Senator Heikamp. She'll work with anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess unless it's her political opponent, Kevin Kramer, in which case her campaign's going to come out and claim that Senator, or excuse me, Congressman Kramer uh, being appointed uh, to be a, a farm bill negotiator was politics at its worst. All of the the, the left-wing, American Bridge, Media Matters uh, people that Senator Heitkamp imported into North Dakota to run her campaign for her, who, by the way, I I, got to think, probably feel a little nauseated having to spend all their time messaging about what a great ally Senator Heitkamp is to Donald Trump. Uh, They're out there saying it's politics at its worst for North Dakota's only member of the United States House of Representatives to be appointed to negotiate the Farm Bill, which is a hugely important piece of legislation for the state of North Dakota. Why do they think that's politics at their worst? Like, is it just because it is Kramer, or do they actually Yeah, because it's Kramer. Ar- right. There's so so no because it's Kramer, there, because they say, well, it's, 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 they, they said that it's, it's the Republican leadership moving Kramer into a position, um, you know, basically appointing him for no other reason than Kramer is Heitkamp's opponent in the Senate race. And part of their argument is that Kramer was appointed. He's not on the Ag Committee. He was appointed from, I think it's the House Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So he was appointed from that committee to be a, a, a negotiator on the farm bill. But so what? Right? So they're saying, oh, well, you know, the uh, the House leadership didn't appoint a Republican from the Ag Committee. They appointed Kevin Kramer because he's Heidi Heitkamp's opponent. And that's politics at its worst. The problem is... Earl Pomeroy, I think it was in 2008, was appointed in the same way. Wasn't on the House Agriculture Committee, but was appointed to be a farm bill negotiator. I think it was 2008. But basically the same things happened in the past. It's not that big of a deal. What is a big deal is what it reveals to us about Senator Heitkamp, which I I think is awfully eye-opening. And by the way, speaking about that, speaking about being eye-opening, uh, there's a new group, a new outside group, an, another left-wing group. And, and there's going to be a lot, right and left, there's going to be lots of these, you know, independent groups, you know, airdropping money into North Dakota to try to influence the election. All the money that they spend, I don't know. I don't know that it typically helps the candidates. I think a lot of times it can kind of hurt them. You know, I don't, I don't know that anybody decides to vote for a candidate. But they might, because of this, all this third-party advertising, whatever, I think it might inspire them to vote against the candidate. And a lot of times, even the, the, the candidate that the advertising is supposed to uh, support. I'm thinking of that, that um, what is it, Priorities USA uh, ad yeah. that we were talking about last week where they hired a couple of out-of-state actors to play North Dakota, cranky North Dakota rooms. It was, like, filmed in Maryland or something, like, way yeah. far away from here. Yeah. I think stuff like that tends to backfire. Like, that's supposed to help Senator Heitkamp. I think that backfires. Uh, there's another group out though. They call themselves the Vote Vets, um, and, and ostensibly they're a nonpartisan veterans organization. But the New York Times has described them quote as quote a group closely aligned with congressional Democrats. So they're just kind of another partisan front group masquerading as a as a as a you know nonpartisan veterans group. But anyway, they're attacking Congressman Kevin Kramer. They've got an ad out. I, I posted it up at sayanythingblog.com if you haven't seen it. Um, but you know, it, it basically it pulls some of, of Congressman Kramer's you know votes and comments out of out of out of context and hits them on that. Basically, your typical political ad. But what's interesting about this group, this vote vets group, is that they are 
calling right now, they're calling President Trump a traitor. Right? I mean, it's all over. You can see an example of some of their tweets up at sayanythingblog.com. Uh, but here's here's one of their tweets. This is from July 16th, just earlier this month, contemporaneous to that um, President Trump and, and that, that meeting with, with uh, Putin from Russia in Helsinki. Uh, this is what they have to say to Trump voters. This is Vote Vets. This is a group that's in North Dakota uh, currently running ads in support of Heidi Heitkamp, right, attacking Congressman Kevin Kramer on behalf of, of Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, who, who, by the way, portrays herself as a Trump ally. Right. She's the works with anyone. Trump ally. Here's what this group is saying. I quote to everyone who voted for Donald Trump. You own today in history. Don't act like you're offended now. You can't run from this. You and the GOP led Congress uh, attacked this investigation into Russian interference from day one. Today, you saw the results of your effort. Hashtag treason summit. Here's another tweet. Quote, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or adhering to their enemy, giving them aid and comfort. Trump's actions in Helsinki are the founding father's very definition of treason. Okay, so here you have Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who is trying to promote herself as a friend to President Trump, right? Remember just a few weeks ago, Ben, the North Dakota Democratic Party was tweeting out they were making fun of Kevin Kramer because Heidi Heitkamp got to stand closer oh, yeah. to President Trump during a bill signing I con- remember that. Uh, bill signing ceremony. Um, I mean, Senator Heitkamp is all but trying to sit in Donald Trump's lap. Senator Heitkamp is out running one ad after another, bragging about how she votes with Donald Trump most of the time. Right. right, she's out there doing that, and then she's mm-hmm. got these groups, you know, Priorities USA, which is running that that North Dakota, you know, oh look at these, let's hire some actors to play North Dakota rubes, um, and 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 attack Kevin Kramer that way. That was a super PAC that spent millions trying to get Hillary Clinton elected in 2016. Now you got the vote vets who think that President Trump is treasonous, right? President Trump is treasonous. So the important thing here, Ben, is is what does this tell us about Senator Heitkamp's posturing of herself as this centrist, conservative Democrat in an election year? Say at the very least, it's sending a pretty mixed message to a lot of people. A mixed message, I think, is is absolutely the case. Now, we roll back on her voting record. According to Congressional Quarterly, Senator Heitkamp voted with, with the Democratic majority. Uh, and voted with President Barack Obama more than 90% of the time. In fact, I think I believe it's more than 95% of the time during her first two years in office. Now, as she has moved closer to Election Day, Senator Heitkamp has moved her voting pattern closer to the center, closer to you know what, what she's portraying herself now as, as this conservative Democrat. So you have to ask yourself, why would some of these groups, why would the vote vets who think that President Donald Trump is a traitor, why would Priorities USA, who was which which was founded by Obama administration or excuse me Obama campaign alumni, which supported Barack Obama's elect re-election in 2012, which tried to help Hillary Clinton win in 2016. Why would they support Heidi Heitkamp if she really meant when she said that she's a Trump ally that she votes with him most of the time? Why would they be supporting her? I mean, is that not a fair question, Ben? I think that's pretty fair. 
Like there's there's an obvious disconnect there. I mean, the way Senator mm-hmm. Heitkamp is campaigning, you wouldn't think she's the sort of candidate that these left wing, self described progressive groups would want to support. But yet here they are. They're out there. They're spending millions supporting her. Well, maybe they haven't hit millions yet, but they're spending a lot of money. Let's put it that way. They're spending a lot of money running ads supporting her. Yeah. Why? They need the Senate seat. That's yeah. the only thing I can think of. Yeah. And and, and, and maybe that – maybe – I mean, at, at the very least, you could say, well, yeah, they want they want Chuck Schumer to be the majority leader of the United States Senate. They want Democrats to have a majority in the Senate so that they can ob- obstruct President Trump's policy agenda so that they can obstruct any future – uh, appointments to to say the, the the courts by President Trump. That's what they want. And maybe you can even go a step further and say, well, maybe what Senator Heitkamp's saying about her move to the right, her move to the center, isn't all that authentic. And that she's doing it with a sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. And these national groups know that once Senator Heitkamp's elected, she'll go back to voting with other Democrats more than 90 percent of the time, as she did previous in her term. You know, it's it's this this I'm a moderate, I'm a centrist, I'll work with anyone that is central to Senator Heitkamp's message for re-election. And when these left-wing groups come in, these left-wing groups who think Trump's a traitor, these left-wing groups who who tried to get Hillary Clinton elected instead of Donald Trump, they're out there and they're saying, oh, you know, not saying so much for Heitkamp as we're going to attack Kevin Kramer to support Heidi Heitkamp, to help her win. I, I don't know. I think you got to look at that situation and ask yourself some some hard questions. If you're out there thinking that Heidi Heitkamp is the conservative Democrat, the moderate, the centrist, the bipartisan that she claims that she is. We're going to take a break. We'll get to the we got a one caller holding on. Hold on, caller. We'll get to you right after the break. If you want to join in, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM 7129 Email talk at WDAY.com. Again, Senator Heikamp, just just to hit on uh what we're talking about earlier in the program. Senator Heikamp say, Oh, I'm I'm bipartisan, I'm a centrist, I'm a moderate. I mean that's what everybody I, I talked to I talked to journalists in the news media like, well, Heidi Heidi's a moderate, Heidi's a centrist. But she's very good at cultivating that image of herself. Um, you know, the problem is, is, is she's a moderate, she's a centrist, which is close to election day. But she's far away from election day. She's not so moderate. She's not so centrist. And all this stuff about, oh, I'm, 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 I vote with Trump most of the time. But now you got a group that thinks that Donald Trump is literally a tra- literally meets the constitutional definition of a traitor. Which, by the way, is the only, I believe, I believe that's the only crime that's actually in the Constitution, Ben, is treason. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's it's in the Constitution, and the penalty for it is death. Now, that group is out here in North Dakota supporting Heidi Heitkamp, who claims that she's an ally to President Trump. But I think that's a little weird, and I think it might cause some people to wonder, what do those groups know about Senator Heitkamp that we don't? Love to hear what you think. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Let's get to the phone's uh, caller, Karen. You're on. What's up? Well, because Donald Trump is going to be the one who presents this ninth Supreme Court judge candidate, I believe that Heidi Heitkamp is going to run, uh, run, 
is going to vote for Judge Kavanaugh because she's going to have to vote for a judge that Donald Trump presents anyway. Yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I think she's going to have to because it's an election year, Karen. It's an election year, and she's going to Senator Heikamp's going to have to vote for President Trump's nominee to get reelected. But I don't think that's where she is. I mean, the, the question is, how is she going to vote uh, if she gets reelected? How is she going to vote in 2019 and 2020? I'm saying that in 2019, if um, Judge Kavanaugh has not been confirmed yet, she even if he ends up having to choose a different Republican candidate for that ninth spot in the Supreme Court, she's going to have to vote. She would have to vote for that one anyway, because Trump has two more years to present candidates for that. So that's the reason I don't, why. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that she has to. It's certainly what she could do is she could vote to filibuster. I mean, she could vote now. I guess the filibuster's gone uh, now after after the Gorsuch. But I mean, she she she's a vote towards. Keeping Senator Heitkamp in the chamber is a vote towards a Democratic majority. A Democratic majority means Chuck Schumer controls the Senate, and Chuck Schumer doesn't have to allow a vote on anybody. But Judge Kavanaugh is a good choice for Donald Trump to make. I agree. I believe that she is going to prefer him to if Donald Trump has to present a second uh, candidate instead. I don't. I don't think that's true. I think. I think in 2019, Senator Heitkamp's going to be about six years away from having to worry about getting reelected again, and she's going to be totally free to vote. You know, I. I think a lot further to the left than she's campaigning. Karen, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday dot com. Caller Jim, you're on. What's up? Yeah, you know this whole let's talk about oh, how Heidi Heitkamp votes with President Trump. Pelosi and Schumer allow her to vote with them because they know on, on other doors they're not going to pass anyway. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, the Democrats don't have a, a chance of defeating them. So, guess what? In the re election year, they always say, okay, well, you're up for election. You can go ahead and vote for this so that, you know, you can, it'll look good that you're voting with the president, you know, for, for the base back in North Dakota. It's a, it's a whole political game. And I just like, yeah. when, they, when they try to run that on, on the radio, like she's voting with Trump, they just really think people are stupid. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's my, pro- yeah, well, that's, that's my problem, Jim, is, is, or Senator Heitkamp's ad is, I, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Trump ally, right? I mean, that's basically, I vote with Donald Trump most of the time. I'm a moderate, I'm a centrist. But then you have a group like Vote Vets who's like, you know, they, they're dropping money here in North Dakota in support of Heidi Heitkamp, and they think President Trump's a traitor. Now, why would they support somebody who's posturing themselves as a Trump ally when they think Trump meets the, the literal constitutional definition of traitor. Why would they do that unless unless they believe that Senator Heitkamp's not telling the truth? Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Jim. Appreciate it. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM 7129390880890930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930930
the Supreme Court pick and and what role it'll play in the Senate race, and then obviously what role President Trump plays in the Senate race. Which, by the way, I saw a national poll earlier today that that was the number one issue that a lot of people were going to be basing their congressional votes on were how people felt about Donald Trump. Democrats wanting, you know, obviously wanting their candidates to oppose Donald Trump. Republicans obviously wanting their candidates to support Donald Trump. You want to know why Heidi Heitkamp is out there touting herself as this sort of Trump ally. Um, You know, that's why is, I mean, President Trump, for better or worse, is the prism through which voters are going to see this election race. So anyway, so that's that's a thing. The um, but anyway, in the New York Times piece, you know, Senator Heitkamp's talking about, oh, well, Kevin Kramer's just kind of got himself glued to Donald Trump. And what I'm saying is, you know, I, I like a lot of the stuff he does, but I'll vote against him when he's wrong, which, you know, I mean, you can see that. I mean, it's 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 a smart tactic, I guess. Um, But what it ignores is the fact that voting for Senator Heitkamp is another vote towards Chuck Schumer running the United States Senate. You know, and, and so if, if you agree, I mean, if you if you're going to vote for, for Heidi Heitkamp because you want her to agree with President Trump, most of the time as her own campaign advertising is saying, if that's what you want. Well, ask yourself, how often is Chuck Schumer going to support President Trump's policy agenda if he's the majority leader? Because a vote for Heitkamp is a vote for that. You know, it's, a, it's an inescapable reality in the same New York Times piece. Um, and Congressman Kramer talks about you know he he kind of pokes fun at Heitkamp for for describing herself as being independent all the time independent independent and he asks independent of what you know she has to be independent of her national political party meanwhile I don't have to be ashamed of my political affiliations and boy doesn't that just put it into a nutshell for Senator Heitkamp she has to be ashamed in an election year of her affiliation with the National Democratic Party. That's why in 2012 she didn't, which was a presidential year, she didn't go to her party's national convention. Now, there is no national convention this year because it's a midterm. But, uh, you know, when asked previously, she was asked in an article, you know, where, where does her allegiance lie? She didn't say the National Democratic Party. She said the North Dakota Democratic Party. But, you know, all this is just election year posturing. All right, let's uh, let's move on. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Now, Ben, you'll remember earlier this month we had on uh, Stutzman County Sheriff Chad Kaiser. Yep. We had him on. Uh, we had him on at the same time. or not at the same time, but we had both him and uh, David Owens from the um, – ballot measure to legalize recreational marijuana they had just turned in their signatures to put that measure on the ballot it sounds like more than likely that measure will be on the ballot um owens obviously gave the uh, the affirmative case for legalizing recreational marijuana in north dakota sheriff kaiser gave the alternative case and one of the arguments you'll remember one of the arguments sheriff kaiser made and it's not an argument that's unique to him i've heard it from a lot of opponents of this ballot measure but one of the arguments made is that this was going to create more work for law enforcement correct Yes, I remember I remember yeah. him saying that, yeah. Yeah, he said that. He said it's going to create more work for law enforcement. It's going to create more headaches for them. Uh, you know, it's 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 not – whereas on the other side, the mar- the, the pro-marijuana folks, they're saying, well, this is actually going to create if, – if we legalize marijuana, then all the time and effort they're spending into enforcing marijuana statutes can be turned over to other things. Right. right. That's that's the that's the two sides of the argument. Well, there's a there was a study conducted by Washington State University. Right. Because everybody always says, well, just look at Colorado. Just look at Washington. These other states that have legalized recreational marijuana. Look at look at them. 
right? That's what everybody says. So this is what this study looked at. It's, again, by Washington State University. They looked at Washington and Colorado. They looked at legalization there. And according to the Washington Post, legalization of marijuana in those states has, quote, produced some demonstrable and persistent benefit to law enforcement. Really? Yeah. Now, this is from the study's abstract. I quote, uh, and by the way, if you want to read the full study, I have a link up to it at sayanythingblog.com. Uh, you can also uh, read the uh, Washington Post report on it. Uh, but from the abstract, it says, I quote, specific to public safety, advocates of legalization expected improvements in police effectiveness through the reduction in police time and attention to cannabis offenses, thus allowing them to reallocate resources to more serious offenses. Using 2010 to 2015 Uniform Crime Reports data, the research undertakes interrupted time series analysis on the offenses known to be cleared by arrests to create monthly counts of violent and property crime clearance rate, as well as disaggregated counts by crime type. Findings suggest no negative impacts of legalization on crime clearance rates. Moreover, evidence suggests some crime clearance rates have improved. Our findings suggest legalization has resulted in improvements in some clearance rates. Now, they say oh. suggest there are some there are some caveats. You know, they, they want to say, you know, this, obviously the legalization of marijuana uh, isn't um, isn't necessarily um, the only variable in these matters. Right. There could be other policies that change or other right. social or economic factors which which, you know, have impacts on crime. When it comes to crime, there's a lot of variables. We'll just put it that way. Uh, they note, however, that no other major changes to public policy happen in those states that would affect clearance rates in the way that they observed. This is what they say in the Washington Post. Quote, we think the argument that legalization did, in fact, produce a measurable impact on clearance rates is plausible. So there you have it. Um, you have uh, basically, you know, a study saying it's it's plausible. Now, at the very least, I mean, I I think what you could argue is that it's maybe a little bit ambiguous, right? I mean, even even the people in the study yeah. themselves, they're, they're not saying definitively that legalization led to better clearance rates. Right. Clearance rates, by the way, in law enforcement are basically cases that get cleared, like basically sort of cases solved. And basically, correlation does not equal causation just because right. it happens so, so, at the same time doesn't mean that they influence right. each other. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, we see the same argument when we talk about uh, guns in the United States. We have seen, over the last several decades, we have seen a liberalization in gun control policies in America, both through the courts and through you know things like expanded concealed carry laws and everything. Contemporaneous to that, we have seen a decline in violent gun crime in America. Both of those things are true at the same time. Now, I think it's, I don't know that I've seen enough evidence for me to say as gospel that one begat the other, right? I, I, I don't know that you could say there is a causal relationship between increased rates of gun ownership, uh, more liberalized gun laws, and a decline in violent crime in America. There's too many variables. I, can't, I don't think you could say that. At the very least, though, you can say that liberalized gun control laws and more guns sold, as we certainly saw under the Obama administration, has not led to a spike in violent crime. That is definitely true, and I think you could say the same thing here. Okay, did marijuana legalization uh, help clearance rates in law enforcement? Maybe. Maybe it did. But one thing it doesn't seem to have done is make those rates worse, which to me is is the deciding factor. It's, it's not incumbent upon, um, you know, I, I guess say, say what you want about legalizing marijuana, um, 
at the very least, you could say it didn't make clearance clearance rates worse. Now, marijuana legalization is a charged political topic. It will generate a lot of debate here in North Dakota. We'll hear from law enfor- the law enforcement community who will, and, and already is, per our interview with Sheriff Kaiser. Um, they will argue that legalization will make law enforcement jobs harder. That's going to be part of their argument. Um, I don't know that it's the case. You know, based on, on what we're seeing out of Washington, Colorado in this study, I'm not so sure. But what is true is that there are a lot of people served by the status quo of marijuana prohibition. I mean, there's a lot of people who get busted for marijuana and then get sentenced to have to undergo treatment, and there's organizations that get paid to provide that treatment. All those marijuana busts uh, can be used as data for law enforcement agencies that want bigger budgets and more equipment and bigger payrolls. There's there's a saying. It's called. Have you have you heard of this? It's called the Shirky principle. Have you heard about the this? The Shirky principle. No, I've not. The Shirky. It's sort of like the, the the Peter principle, right? Which is the idea that people will rise to the level of their own incompetence. Okay. Right. Like like well, you you'll get keep keep getting promoted for doing a good job until you're not doing a good job anymore, right? Until you rise to a level that you're just not okay. competent at anymore. Now you're stuck at a level that you're not that competent at. Thus, you're no longer getting promoted. It's the Peter principle. Okay. The Shirky principle is sort of based on that, and it, it argues that institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. Does that make sense? Yes. Institutions yeah. will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. So I, I think sometimes you have to wonder, like, organizations, and I, I think you could really see this a, across the public policy debate, that a lot of organizations – you almost get the feeling don't ever really want their problems to go away, right? Like if you're, because no, it keeps them busy, right? Like yeah. if you're, if you're out, um, I, I don't know. If you're an activist group and you're you're advocating for an end to animal cruelty, do you ever want to admit that animal cruelty is no longer a problem? Because if you admit that, then kind of like your job is now obsolete. Like, what is the point of your group now? If animal cruelty is obsolete, why do we need to pay you? you know, $100,000 a year or whatever it is to be at the top of this organization. Now, I, law enforcement, they got a tough job to do, and I understand it. I understand what they're doing. But I think like anybody, I, I don't think they're out there twirling their mustaches saying, let's keep more things illegal so that we can have bigger budgets and more equipment. I think the problem is when you're in the law enforcement community, you tend to see everything through a certain lens. And that can be a little bit unfortunate sometimes, and that, that lens can be a little bit distorting. But I, I don't know. I, I Whenever legalization of marijuana comes up, I immediately hear people say, well, look at look at the experience people have had in Colorado. Look at the experience people have had in Washington. What well, looks like, at least insofar as we can measure the issue with clearance rates from law enforcement, the legalization of marijuana folks have it right. It frees up law enforcement resources to focus on other crimes. That, to me, seems like a good thing. I'm not saying it's the only good thing. I'm not saying it's the only facet of this debate. But it's one worth noting. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Caller, Lawrence, you're on. What's up? Well, good day to you, Rob Port. Long time no see, long time not much here from you, but uh, I'm glad you're still up and at them. I uh, have a question or a comment on your newspaper article and also tie it in with what you're saying on the show here. The uh, marijuana, of course, is very beneficial to a society in turning it away uh, from crime and criminality and aggressiveness. But one of the things you mentioned in the paper was 
why alcohol did not meet the Schedule One substance, because alcohol does have an accepted medical use, Rob Port, and that is to kill some pain in the evening without binding up your guts like narcotics does. Yeah, well, I, I think people might make that same argument of marijuana. In fact, a lot of them do. Okay, well, fine, but then one wonders how alcohol doesn't also meet that definition. That is why. And you must right. agree with us that that is a better painkiller in small amounts than narcotics that binds up the guts. Uh... I don't know that I'm qualified to say. Listen, I, I, I totally get people wanting to have a beer at the end of the day to relax. I think, like, with anything, it could be habit-forming. I think, like anything, uh, you know, you can go too far with it. Too much of, course, is, too much of anything is, is a bad thing. And I'll tell you, the evening after surgery for about a week or two, a nice strong ounce right. of good, strong liquor, take the edge <laughs> off the pain, is very medicinal. Well, there, I... I won't. Hey, if it works for you, I'm not going to argue with it. I think you should probably listen to a licensed physician about that sort of thing. But I talked to my physician about it as well. Great, wonderful. Yeah. If it works for you, I'm I'm more than happy. My my argument was, you know, they, they say that it has no accepted medical use. Um, I mean, if they're going to, my point was, if they're going to apply that, we're talking about my Sunday column. My point was, if we're going to apply that standard to marijuana. I don't know. It kind of seems like alcohol's in the same boat and we're picking and choosing. I don't know. Hey, more to come straight ahead here on the Rob Report. 970 WDAYM 93.1 FM. If you want to get in, 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back to Rob Report. 970 WDAYM 93.1 FM. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com, talking about the, uh, the, the the debate over marijuana, which is going to heat up in this state. And, and again, we're going to hear, I, I, I think any time that, that you legalize something like marijuana, like marijuana has been prohibited for a long time. You open up the doors to it. I mean, it's people have been, I, I think, I don't want to say indoctrinated. I think that's the wrong word. But people get very used to having a certain attitude about something, right? And the, I think attitudes about marijuana have shifted very quickly. I mean, even in North Dakota, look, we legalized medical marijuana not all that long ago. Um, right. You know, so attitudes on this are shifting very quickly. I think a lot of people are still going to cling to some old attitudes like this. I think it's a positive. I think it's a positive thing if we can legalize recreational marijuana. Look, it's happening anyway. Current prohibition laws aren't doing much to stop it. If you want pot in North Dakota, just about anyone else in the world, you can get pot. I don't have the statistics, obviously, because we're talking about a black market. I don't have the statistics on it. But I'd be willing to bet good money that pot dealers in North Dakota are more ubiquitous than Starbucks. I'd be willing to bet good money on that. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDOI.com. My Sunday column that the uh, the listener was calling in about was about the Bank of North Dakota getting into the the, the, the marijuana business, which I think... Um, we have a state-owned bank. It's pretty unique in the country. It's not regulated by the FDIC. It's not regulated by uh, federal bankers. I think there's a real opportunity there. I mean, medical marijuana is an industry. I mean, 46 states, 46 states, men, have legalized marijuana to one degree or another. I think maybe it's time to, to get over this idea that, uh, you know, just work past the federal prohibition and, and look at maybe using the Bank of North Dakota as a, as a place for capital, as a place for, for banking services, for this emergent marijuana industry. A lot of money to be made with it. 
it's happening. Yeah. It's legal here in North. I mean, we've already legalized part of it here in North Dakota. Let's let's get going on it. Caller, George, you're on. What's up? Yes, um, I just want to say that I, I'm not a smoker or nothing, but I do feel that if we legalize marijuana, I have got a lot of benefits. I do know I had some friends that they had cancer and uh, they couldn't hold food, and they used that. I know the fact that uh, I have a friend right now who's in Kansas and they have neurological problems, and they go to a spasm, and, and they use that. And at the same time, this is agricultural development. And at the same time, uh, the state can make money by taxation. <laughs> by taxation, they can generate money for the state. And also, um, one of the areas I have to say that when it's legalized, um, we don't have this overdose of um, opioid anymore. I mean, people usually use that to get their tens- tension done, or maybe they have anxiety disorder. I do know. I have some friends that they have gone to California specifically because they have a severe depression and anxiety. And when I saw them, I said, how does it work? He said, it's really working well yeah. for me. So I would say as a person that I don't smoke cigarette or alcohol, being legalized, it does have some proof in the fact that it helps people who have got some emotional and mental disorders and also for people who have got a cancer. I'm going to hang up and listen to you. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for the call, George. Appreciate it. Um, I, I will say, Ben, I've always been a little dubious as to the medical benefits of marijuana. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I could get, I can get the pain relief part of it. I think there's some other claims out there that uh, let's just say I'm dubious. Um, but generally speaking, uh, I, I, I don't really know that it's up to me to tell people like what's going to work for them. I mean, that's kind of between you and your doctor. That's a very that's kind personal of between, thing. It's a very personal thing. Yeah. So it's it's not up to me. I mean, if marijuana helps, okay, you know, I'm fine with it. Just like we had a caller earlier, uh, you know, who's who's treating pain by having, apparently after talking to his doctor, who's treating pain by having some liquor. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I again, I think that should probably done be done in consultation with a, uh, a physician and make sure you're not doing yourself more harm than good. But that being said, um, if you're comfortable with it, it's your life, it's your body, it's your health. Um, I mean, to me, the argument for marijuana, I, I don't I think the mistake, I don't think we have to make an affirmative action for for when we're talking about making things legal. Right. Things that are currently legal. I don't know that it's it's necessarily because I, I think we turn this on its head a lot. Right. Like, I, I don't think that I have to justify my freedoms to anybody. Right. I, I don't have to explain to people why I want to say what I want to say. Uh, it's protected by the First Amendment. You can we just agree. Do what you want to do right? Yeah. I, so I don't. I don't think. I, I think that if if you're the person who wants to make something illegal or even keep something illegal, it's up to you to make the case for that. It's not up to me to make the case. You know, I understand why people do it. I understand why people talk about marijuana and its benefits and everything. I I get that. Um, but to me, the most powerful argument for it is 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 what is marijuana prohibition accomplishing? And I look, and it seems to be very little. We're certainly not stopping very many people from buying, wanting, getting marijuana. I mean, most people who want to buy marijuana are buying marijuana. And so if we're, if we're not really stopping anything, then what? what's the point? What are we accomplishing going forward? I mean, to me, that's the most powerful. Argument. Well, and especially when you look at the money put towards uh, law enforcement and marijuana, it could go to things like the yeah. opioid, opioid crisis well, right now. That's that's how we just started talking about yeah. this. I mean, we we talk, Washington, Colorado, their clearance rates have improved since the legalization of marijuana. Yeah. That seems like a good thing to me.
Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Hour 2 of the Rob Report. Christina Rasmussen, she's the VP of Federal Affairs for the Foundation for Government Accountability. We're going to talk about this farm bill thing. Congressman Kevin Kramer appointed to be one of the uh, one of two House negotiators on that bill. Uh, we'll talk with them about that, plus your phone calls right after this. Don't go away. I'm in love with her Welcome back. Hour 2, Rob Report, 970 WDYM 93.1 FM. Uh, ben... <laughs> Apropos of the discussion of the last segment, uh, just reading a uh, a headline here out of the state of Washington. Uh, first drive-through pot shop opens in Auburn, <laughs> Washington. Yeah, we well, gotta wonder: can you just get pot or like something to eat too with it then, or because you're gonna need it? Oh, you would think that would be a perfect combo. Yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love I love capitalism, Ben. Right. I love it. It is it is pervasive. It's everywhere. You know what I like best is when is when some some enterprising entrepreneur is selling like Che Guevara shirts to commies, right? Making a, making a fortune. And they don't see the irony in it at all. Yeah, I think it's the best. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. All right, we're not talking about pot anymore. Now we're talking about. The farm bill, although the pot folks argue that it could be very good for agriculture. Anyway, the farm bill as a piece of public policy is this very, very weird thing, because obviously there's a lot of farm policy in there, crop insurance programs and everything else. Um, But then also sort of welded onto it is this question of nutrition programs, specifically the Supplemental Nutrition and Assistance Program, which I think most of us, most of you probably know is as food stamps um that's always a big part of it as well as a matter of fact it's the biggest part of the farm bill and it creates a lot of weird political i don't know what you want to call them ramifications uh anyway here to talk with us about that because obviously the farm bill is a hugely important piece of public policy to our part of the country it's a huge part of the north dakota senate race uh, particularly since uh, Senator Heitkamp, uh, her campaign's uh, nose is out of joint because Congressman Kramer was appointed to be one of the House negotiators for that bill. Uh, but here to talk with us about that portion of the bill related to food stamps is Christina Rasmussen. She's the VP of Federal Affairs for the Foundation for Government Accountability. Christina, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So so tell us about the weird – and I, I think every time a new farm bill goes through, there's always these weird dynamics around the food stamps part of it. What are we seeing this time around? Well, there's a really interesting conversation happening right now, in part because we're in labor shortage territory, of how can we better design the program so that able-bodied adults are encouraged to work at least part-time, train or volunteer, in order to maintain access to the program. So we see that a lot of the people who came on to the food stamp program during the Great Recession have stayed on, and many are not working. So is there a way to better design this program so we can help more Americans find their way off the sidelines and back into the workforce? Okay, so how is that going? Well, it's going uh, pretty well. In the House, uh, they passed some pretty significant reforms that basically said if you're an able-bodied adult on food stamps, you need to work, train, or volunteer part-time if you want to keep your benefits. That passed. President Trump has said that he's looking for these reforms, 
uh, when in whatever bill gets sent to his desk, that it's really important that they be in there. Uh, the Senate was a different story. Even though we have a near record number of able-bodied adults on this welfare program right now, uh, they decided really to do almost nothing, in part because um, far-left Democrats who were uh, basically saying, if you want to pass a farm bill, we're not going to reform welfare at all, uh, ruled the day. So there's really this uh, tension that's been set up in terms of trying to come up with a compromise when it gets to the conference committee. Now, Christina, just I want to be clear about where uh, our our local uh, member, you know, members of Congress are on this issue. Uh, Congressman Kramer, I'm assuming he probably voted for the work requirements in the House. That's right. Over in the House side, Congressman Kramer did support these common sense uh, work trainer volunteer part time requirements for able bodied adults. Um, over in the Senate, it was a different situation. Uh, the Democrats were not excited about including these reforms. And so what was ultimately passed um, out of the Senate did not include the reforms. And it's really a shame because when you think about it, big picture, there are almost 20,000 able-bodied adults in North Dakota on food stamps right now. That's a lot of people. And over half are not working at all. And when you think that the state has a lot of open jobs right now and employers are having a hard time finding workers, Well, there's an opportunity to kind of reconnect people who can work with jobs that are open so we have less dependency and more economic opportunity. Well, we got we got Congressman Kramer in the on the Senate side. um, Senator Hovind, Senator Heitkamp, how have they been on this issue? Um, Kind of missing in action. Uh, We've seen that uh, some of the other Democrats who are more vocal um, uh, opponents have been out front. It would be wonderful to see them step up and talk about how these common sense reforms really transcend the par- uh, the partisan divide, which they do. We see across the board, you ask your typical voter, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent, everyone loves this idea because it makes sense that able-bodied adults should work, train or volunteer part-time to maintain their benefits. Um, yeah. And if they don't want to work, train or volunteer, you really have to ask, you know, well, should you maintain access forever and ever to a program that's meant for the most needy? So they've been missing in action. Uh, it would be nice to see them come out and endorse this common sense idea. What about and I just I, I I support these requirements. I think they're good policy. I'm glad Congressman Kramer supported them. I wish our senators would maybe uh, get the let out and support them as well. But let me play devil's advocate here for a moment, Christina, and maybe maybe help illuminate this issue for some people who are listening. And by the way, if you want to call in seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine email talk at wday dot com. Um, Christina, tell me. Uh, what if? I mean, because I, I think a lot of people think of food stamps and and they're on food stamps, and the assumption is. Well, okay, if, if you're on food stamps, it's probably because you're having trouble doing something like finding a, a, a job. I mean, what what do you say to people who are who are on food stamps but just can't find work? And I realize, I mean, here in North Dakota, we have a, a chronic labor shortage. I know some parts of the country have a chronic labor shortage, but we're talking about national, national policy. Not every part of the country has a lot of jobs available. What happens if these people can't find jobs and then, what, they lose their benefits? So this is a really important question. Let's break it down. Um, so first off, it's really important to recognize we're just talking about able-bodied adults. So we're not talking about kids or seniors or adults for whom a doctor or social worker say that they can't work for whatever reason. And then it's work, trainer, volunteer. So if you can find that job, great. If you can't find the job, but uh, there's going to be some more uh, money for investment into a training program so you can get the skills that you need, fine. 
But let's say you can't find a training program or a job. Well, there, there's a volunteer opportunity, and that can be done in your local community, maybe a park, a library, volunteer at a food bank. There really are a lot of opportunities to volunteer, even if there isn't a paying job right next door. And then, of course, it's just part-time, 20 hours a week. I know a lot of farmers put 20 hours in and, you know, a day and a half work of worth, but really it's 20 hours a week. And the policy is really designed with a lot of common sense um, uh, features in there, so much so that state governments in administering this policy are given a number of exemptions so that if someone has kind of a, a unique situation that we couldn't foresee um, or they have a good cause that they you know can't get to work for whatever reason uh, that week, that the state can basically say, okay, we'll give you a temporary pass and then help you get what you need to get back to work. Um, but it's not a uh, throw people off, no second chances type situation. It really has been designed to help find success for that individual. Well, we're, we're negotiating. There's there's a listener who just sent in an email, and, and the email says, uh, Rob, one thing the government should do is change the name. Uh, it is not a farm bill, but a welfare bill. Now, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that sentiment, but it, it does, I think, illustrate an important point here, which is that we are talking about food stamps policy in the shadow of, of an overall bill, which is hugely important to the primary industry in in this part of the world. I mean, there's a lot of people, it, it becomes almost very fraught where you have a lot of farmers who are trying to make plans. I mean, farmers are nothing if not planners. They're trying to make long-term plans. They're trying to understand and, and shape their businesses around what government policy is going to be. It creates a situation where somebody like Congressman Kramer, who is negotiating this bill on behalf of these one of the appointed negotiators to negotiate differences between the senate and house versions of the bill he's trying to make these negotiations um i think it's hard for a farm state lawmaker like congressman kramer to die on the hill of this issue when it might uphold uh policy or or, or create uncertainty for, for an industry that's so important to our region yeah, the flip side, though, is also true. Um, does uh, Senator Heitkamp want to die in the hill of opposing work and not getting the farmers the support they need um, no. because uh, part-time work requirements for able-bodied adults is a hill too far for her, right? Okay. Um, the, the, That's the, fair, yeah. The emailer had a really good point that, you know, most of the bill is, in fact, when you look at the spending, uh, either 3 out of 4 or 4 to $5, depending on how you measure it, you know, does go to a welfare uh, program. So there are a lot of... Um, considerations to take into effect. And I know a lot of the agricultural community is having a hard time finding workers right now. And if we're doing a five-year plan for, uh, you know, our food and farm policy going forward, uh, the labor shortage and our uh, number of workers is very much a part of that. And, you know, long-term, if you want farm bills to be successful, and it's inherent that a farm bill is this combination of agricultural interests and people who care about the welfare program uh, known as food stamps, you want that welfare program to be respected, full of integrity, well-run, and targeted where it can do the most good. And that's just not the case right now. Um, it's a case of a program uh, run amok with near-record enrollment of able-bodied adults, even as we have near record low unemployment. So if you want a strong food stamp program going forward, it's got to be run well so that people respect it. And, yeah. you know, that really isn't necessarily the case right now, which I think just speaks to the need for using this moment to do the reforms that are necessary. Well, we talked, I mean, you, you I, that's an absolutely fair point. I mean, flipping that on its head and saying that, you know, does Senator Heidi Heitkamp want to hold up, um, you know, legislation that's beneficial for that industry? 
uh, over the food stamps issue. Do we know where Senator Heitkamp's at on this issue? I mean, do, have, has anybody questioned her? And, and Senator Hoven, too, by the way? You know, it'd be great to get uh, opinion on the record. Um, uh, has been pretty quiet on this front, uh, but it is an integral part of the farm bill, and I think people want to know. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'd ask her, but she doesn't respond to me. Uh, we got a caller, Camber. You're on. What's up? Okay, quick question for your maybe more than one for the uh, nice young lady that you're interviewing. Yes. The cost of this program is what? And number two, there are already 39 programs, work programs, run by the federal government. Why in the world do we want to add another program to the 39 that are already in place that deal yeah, with food stamps and work? Yeah, good questions, Camber. We'll let Chris- yeah, thanks, th- listen. Yeah, thanks, thanks Camber. Uh, Christina, your, your answers. Yeah, so let me um, answer, uh, you know, a lot of people are on food stamps uh, for a variety of reasons, but looking just at able-bodied adults, so not seniors, not kids, um, not disabled adults, but just able-bodied adults, we're looking at 21 million people across the country, and that's really more than double when you look back at, say, 2000, which is the last year that we had unemployment this low. So the program has grown pretty dramatically. Um, in terms of spending, uh, spending is up more than threefold since the turn of the century. Right now, we're spending $34 billion a year on food stamps for able-bodied adults. So this is a pretty significant chunk of change. And you have to ask yourself, okay, if the federal government is going to spend that money, you know, it, would it be better spent on uh, the truly needy, the disabled, other programs, or able-bodied adults who can and probably should be working? Uh, as to the question about um, so the federal government having many programs designed towards promoting work, uh, yes, in fact, it has a lot of programs. Um, and what the Farm Bill seeks to do is to take some of the savings found um, uh, from encouraging more able-bodied adults to work and come off of dependency is to take that savings and then stick it back into those training programs. Uh, so this is really a budget, a neutral bill, as they would call it, in Washington, D.C. speak. But the idea is it's not so much a budget-cutting exercise as a moral exercise designed to help people find their way back to the workforce. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, I think Cameron said, you made it sound like, like this would be starting another, like another government program. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I think it would be changing on how, it would be changing how one program works. And this seems to be, I mean, to me, I like policy. I, I don't want, I don't want the, the status quo to be people on these programs. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody wants that. We don't want people, we want people to be self-sufficient, right? That's the goal. And so I think what you're talking about are the sort of reforms that encourage people to become self-sufficient like okay like I'm, I'm in favor of having food stamps as a safety net absolutely you know but i want them to hit that safety net and then have it designed in a way that helps them spring back into self-sufficiency that's that's the point that should be the goal exactly so we know right now that two out of five able-bodied adults have been on the food stamp program for more than eight years which is pretty stunning when you consider that that's not exactly a, a trampoline it's it's, it's not meant to be that spring back up from, you know, rough uh, time. But the good news is that we've seen that work requirements in the food stamp programs have worked and worked really well to help people find that pathway forward. So Kansas and Maine have uh, implemented work requirements for some childless adults 
uh, within their food stamp programs. And the tracking studies for what happens to people when the food stamp requirements go into place are pretty impressive. Uh, we know that enrollees go back to work really quickly. Their incomes more than double on average. And they didn't just go back to Walmart and McDonald's, but they went back to jobs in more than 600 different industries, including construction, manufacturing, and nursing. And big picture, their time on welfare was cut in half. So the yeah. reason people are talking about work requirements is because we know that they work. Yeah. Well, I, I, well certainly, and we have evidence. I mean, we, we go back to the you know, sort of historic welfare reform that we saw under former President Clinton in, in a Republican Congress, a bipartisan agreement, put in place work uh, work requirements. And, uh, boy, I, I, I sure seem like that, that sure seems like that was a big policy success. Anyway, Christina, we are out of time. I appreciate your time today and uh, looking forward to watching this debate unfold. All righty. Take care. It's Christina Rasmussen. She's VP for Federal Affairs for the Foundation for Government Accountability. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM. You can call in 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report 970 WDYAM 93.1 FM, 701 Email talk at WDAY.com. What do you think about that, Ben? The, the idea of work requirements for food stamps as, uh, and this, again, this is something, it's in the House version of the Farm Bill. Uh, it's not in the Senate version. I guess Senator Heitkamp has been reticent to speak out on this issue, as, as Senator Hoven as well. Um, well. What do you think? I mean, is this something you support, Ben? It. I can definitely see the need for it. It's an issue that I still feel like I don't know as much about. But I think, you know, like you said, the general idea is help people get back on their feet. That'd be a way to do it. Right. Make sure I mean, well, the one thing the one thing I want to avoid and, and I I don't know all the ins and outs. And it, I mean, I, I guess I asked this of Christina and she said it's not an issue. I mean, to me, I like the concept. The thing I want to avoid is creating a sort of catch 22 situation where you're on food stamps because you can't find a job, but you can't get food stamps unless you have a job. Uh, I don't want that situation to be uh, to, to emerge. But generally, I like the idea. Um it, it is weird uh, that the politics of, of this being in the farm bill. I mean, it's it's most of the money that gets spent in, in the farm bill is is on the, the SNAP, is on food stamps. Um, and that's, that's frustrating to me. I guess the rebuttal to that is a lot of people say, well, you know, if, if you don't have food stamps in the bill, then the urban lawmakers have no reason to want to pass, ever pass a farm bill. And so we've got to put food stamps in the mix because that's important to urban lawmakers and that's how – the sausage gets made, which is unfortunate because you'd think we'd be able to just consider each individual policy on its own merits and not have it choked by parochialism. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Caller, Chris, you're on. What's up? Hey, Rob, I'll make it quick. I know you don't have a, a whole lot of time, but um, I, uh, I was going to just make a comment about the, the whole marijuana situation and um, you know how, how police officers may or may not oppose it and that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, I I know you lived in Alaska for a while, and it, have you ever seen that uh, that show Alaska State Troopers that was on for a while? I I never actually. My father was an Alaska State Trooper, so oh, I, really? I oh cool. I lived I lived the life a little bit um, as a, <laughs> as, a, as a as a family member. I was, obviously, my dad was a cop, but um, I never watched the show though. No, 
Okay. Well, anyways, real quick, the comment I wanted to make was there. There was an officer on one of the uh, one of the episodes of those shows. He, you know, and they're all amazing officers, of course. But the one, you know, he he made this comment about how you know he really loves making marijuana busts because he strongly believes that people start doing marijuana and it leads them to this horrible you know, life of squalor and crime and everything like that. And he is sincere. He was truly sincere. Sure. Now, of course, I, I disagree yeah. with him, and a lot of people do, and I, and I don't think it's true. But I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of these officers, I mean, they've been taught what they've been taught, yeah. and they truly yeah. believe that marijuana is what it is. Whether it is true or not, they've, they've been, you know, more or less indoctrinated into that belief. And I think that um, we should be careful to go down the, the road too much that it's simply, you know, people trying to make money and law enforcement trying yeah. to find reasons to, you know, pad their budget. I, I truly believe that a that, lot of them though. really believe it, even, even though I believe that. I, I agree with you. And that's I mean, that's what I mean. I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't disparaging law enforcement. Uh, listen, I, I think I think any government, I, I think law enforcement is a government bureaucracy that, that, that shares a lot of traits with other, other government bureaucracies. I don't mean this to demean the work that law enforcement officers do or to impugn their character or anything like that. Just in that sometimes, by human nature, um, when you're a hammer, you tend to see everything as a nail. And I think true, law enforcement can, can, can do that. And that was my only point. Now, and again, I'm the son of a cop. I love cops. I grew up around cops. I think they're great. My father was an Alaska state trooper. So I get it from the law enforcement side, but I, I think it's just something when we hear law enforcement talk about these issues, I think it's worth keeping in mind. Sometimes the law enforcement perspective can be a little myopic. That was my point. But, Chris, your point, well made. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. We got to take a break. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this um, this question of ending birthright citizenship. Uh, there was a uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post by Michael Anton. He's a, a conservative intellectual, former Trump administration official, a supporter of the president, obviously. Uh, he advocated ending birthright citizenship. I wanted to get to that on the program today. I don't know not going to have a lot of time for it today. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit tomorrow. I think it's an interesting birthright citizens, of course, is the idea that if you're born within the United States, you're a citizen. Um, and there's some people that think that we ought to end it, that it adds, uh, it, it serves as sort of a, well, it, an attraction for people to get across the border, enter, enter the country legally, and then have their children here and have them become United States citizens with all the the obvious benefits, uh, which which is attached to that. Yeah, I remember um, the hysteria around anchor babies. It seemed like a couple of years ago, right? To that, yeah. So that's that's an interesting question. But the marijuana issue uh, keeps um, keeps coming up. I actually had a, uh, a listener on Twitter uh, tell me he didn't didn't like some of the things we were talking about earlier in the program. There was a study by Washington State University which indicated that that clearance rates for law enforcement improved after the legalization of marijuana in Washington and Colorado. Uh, on email, Dave says, uh, this is like saying heroin has been shown to get people really high and failing to mention it also kills many of its users. Rob, put down the bong and stop your myopic reporting on marijuana. For example, regular use increases pre-senile dementia substantially. Well, first of all, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not using marijuana. Uh, I don't use marijuana. Um, I tried marijuana one time at a campsite back in the nineties. Uh, I was at a softball tournament and, uh, I tried a little bit of marijuana and, um, it wasn't for me. Didn't enjoy it that much. Haven't touched it since. Not really my thing. Um, 
But I, I don't understand. I mean, I'm not arguing that marijuana is good for you. You know, booze isn't good for you. I mean, really, uh, you know, no. outside of I, I think there's some studies that say like a certain amount of red wine or a certain amount of beer or something can be healthy and whatever. I, I don't know about that. But, you know, generally, I mean, just habitual alcohol use probably has more deleterious effects on your health than than positive ones. Um, I think the same is probably true with marijuana. If you use marijuana consistently, um, it's probably going to have an impact on you, particularly if you start young. It's not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. But then neither is eating cheeseburgers, right? I mean, if you if you eat a McDonald's cheeseburger every day for lunch for your entire life, uh, you're probably going to have some problems with things like blood pressure and cholesterol and you know heart blockages. I mean, that's that's going to be an issue for you yep. if you make that choice. My but, argument is people should be allowed to make those choices. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. It, it's not about whether or not it's good for people. It's just, you know, having that right. option if you want to do it. That gets back to my point about, like, I don't think that you have to make an affirmative. I, we turn this on its head all the time. I don't think that you have to make a, a, an affirmative argument for your freedoms, right? I, I don't – people, like, in the gun control debate, people ask, well, why do you need an AR-15? Well, no, it, it's not incumbent upon me to explain to you why I need an AR-15. It's incumbent upon you to demonstrate – uh, that we can, you know, affect policy that'll that'll uh, produce certain outcomes that we want, right? I mean, it's not that's not how it works. Like, it's not. I I think the default state is freedom, right? The default state is you can do whatever you want, and from there we start saying, okay, well, we've got to curtail certain behaviors. We can't just let people murder one another, and we can't let people steal things, and we can't let people rape one another. You go down that list and you make affirmative arguments. We need to curtail freedoms in all of these other areas, right? So, I mean, to me, if you want to curtail the use of a certain substance, it's up to you to, to, to make the argument that the continued prohibition of that substance is what serves us best. And I don't think the continued, um, I don't think the continued prohibition of marijuana is is the policy that serves us best right now particularly since pretty much everybody who wants marijuana is getting marijuana right i i'm just i i i, I don't understand if you want to find it you can get it yeah yeah anyway 701-293-9000-888-970-9329 email talk at wdy.com um, I want to I want to talk about. Did you see this this kerfuffle over the weekend about a Forbes column? Here's the headline: Amazon should replace local libraries to save taxpayers money. No, I did not see this. Yeah, this is an argument. Okay. Uh, it's by a gentleman by the name of. Let me find. It. I had to print out a cached copy of the article, and and so the the formatting here is a little weird. But it's about a guy, he's actually an economist, like he's the chair of an economics department at a university. And he makes this argument. He says, I quote, Amazon should open their own bookstores in all local communities. They can replace local libraries and save taxpayers lots of money while enhancing the value of their stock. There was a time local libraries offered the local community lots of services in exchange for the tax money. They should bring they would bring books, magazines, and journals to the masses through a borrowing system. Residents could borrow any book they wanted, read it, and return it for someone else to read. I, I like how he's talking about this like in the past tense. Like this doesn't right, like continue to happen. Libraries are have been gone forever now. I was on my smartphone reading this article, literally with a library book that I had just <laughs> checked out on my chest. Like right. This, yeah. Uh 
they also provide residents with a comfortable place they can they could enjoy their books. They provided people with a place they could go to do their research in peace with the help of friendly librarians. Libraries serve as a place where served as a place where residents could hold their community events. But this was a function they shared with local school auditoriums. There's no shortage of places to hold community events. Uh, sli- libraries slowly began to service. Uh, let's see, down the, I'm, I'm trying to find where he makes it. There, uh, then there's the rise of digital technology has turned physical books into collector's items, effectively eliminating the need for library borrowing services. Amazon have created their own online library that has made it easy for the masses to access both physical and digital copies of books. So basically his argument is we ought to just get rid of libraries and replace them with Amazon and save ourselves money. I, I don't know. I I check books out for my Kindle. Like, I check out the physical books from the library. I also check out books for my Kindle. Like, a lot of libraries do this. My library does this, where you can actually go on and, and check out the digital copy and just download it to your Kindle. You know, you just got to log into the, the system with your library account. And, uh, and yeah. You know, that's it. Easy, easy as you please. Doesn't cost you okay. anything more. In fact, there's not even any, there's not any, any late fees either because they just take the book back when you're done. Right. You can't access it anymore. It's a great service. I use it all the time. And so this idea, and I'll tell you, the reason why I do that is because if I had to buy all the books that I read on Amazon, I would go broke. No, I like Amazon. I use Amazon all the time. I'm oh, an yeah. Amazon Prime member. Even with the tax hike, I'm, or not the tax hike, excuse me, the price hike, I'm still an Amazon customer, Amazon Prime customer. It's still worth it to me. You know, the video streaming's worth it. We order a lot of our stuff on there. The two-day shipping's worth it. It's, it's good for us. Um, you know, there's even Prime books, too. There's a lot of books I read that are, you know, we get for free from Prime. It's, it's great. Um, I, I just don't understand. I'm probably about as... as I'm probably about as big a capitalist as it's going to get. Like, I'm a free market guy. I believe in the invisible. I believe in Adam Smith's invisible hand of the free market. I generally think the millions of decisions that people make in their day-to-day lives, economic decisions and whatnot, are generally the best way to guide the economy. You know, I think we need courts. I think we need governments to protect against things like fraud, to settle disputes. But generally, I think you ought to let the free market handle things. I would rather attend to the problems, to paraphrase Thomas Jefferson, I would rather attend to the problems associated with too great a degree of liberty than those attendant to too small a degree of it. So I am a pure capitalist, uh, and I would never, ever, ever want to get rid of my library. No, and I mean, if Amazon wanted to do something like this, go ahead. Like, that'd be great, but... I don't see why you'd have to get rid of libraries just because well, and, and of all, that. And all he's talking about, he's not even talking about Amazon running libraries. He's talking about Amazon just opening bookstores. Yeah. I, I mean, we've got a bookstore in my community. We've got a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Yeah, it's great. Same here. I like, we we got a local bookstore as well. In downtown, why not? It's it's great. You know, I go there, I buy books. I'm glad they're there. Um, But I just, I don't understand his argument. Like, why? what are, what are we replacing at the library? The library is fantastic. We go there. All the time, my kids go there for the programs. I'm, I'm not sure. And this is what bothers me sometimes, if I could be critical of my own ideology for a moment. Conservatives do this, right? I mean, it's, it's like we want to just, we're going to die on some hill on an area of government that's actually working pretty well. Libraries, for the services that they provide to the public, which are manifest and myriad, uh, actually don't cost us that much money. They, they really don't cost that much money. And if anything, I, I think a lot of Americans have started to forget 
just how much you can get from 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 the library. Well, honestly, my kids. Last week when you mentioned you check out video games there, that I didn't even know that you could do that. Yeah, yeah. My daughter checks out video games for her Nintendo Switch. Um, she also has a Nintendo. She has an old an old Nintendo Wii. Sometimes we'll get games for that. Um, you could check out audio books there. Um, I take my my three year old. We, we were just or almost three. We were just there. We just checked out his first book. Oh, he got a book about the PJ Masks saved the library. He's Aww. so proud of it. He was reading it to me last night. Not actually reading it to me. He was telling me stories about the pictures that were in the book. But still, right. I, you know, it's just I don't understand why we do this. Like, why are we attacking libraries? Like, what there's did libraries not, ever I'm, do to that guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't get it. Anyway, this guy got kind of drug over the coals. A bunch of librarians from across the country were jumping all over him, and good on him. You know, that's that's one thing I think conservatives have to be careful. Of. Not all government is evil. Not every part of the government works poorly. The libraries, and obviously there is kind of a local government thing, and maybe it varies from place to place, but generally speaking, libraries are good things. The taxpayers get a lot of bang for their buck there. Let's let's focus our attention on things that actually don't work. More to come here straight ahead on the Rob Report, 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Hey, coming up on the uh, Jay Thomas show, they're going to have a discussion about this uh, this Fergus Falls abduction, um, which is scary. Scary stuff. Yeah. And apparently, I mean, just, just the early reporting we have now, and I, I admit I haven't read in depth on this. I've just sort of the headlines and some of the articles that have been out and some of the, some of the excellent reporting from uh, from WDAY on this. Um, but my understanding is that the, the man who uh, is currently accused of the abduction, um, obviously he's innocent until proven guilty, but the man who stands accused of it right now is uh, someone who was a sex offender. Registered, registered as a... Sex. Registered as a sex, sex offender, offender. high yeah. risk sex offender. You know, this is an interesting part. And Jay, Jay is going to get. You're going to want to stay tuned for Jay's discussion coming up next. But the interesting aspect of that debate to me is we let the sex offenders out of prison, and then we go overboard with all of this stuff. Like they can't live within so many feet of a school or so many feet of a park. And I, I mean, at one point there was legislation here in North Dakota where we were going to require the sex offenders to like turn over their social media passwords and email passwords and everything to, to law enforcement. You know, I mean, we just, all this crazy stuff. And in some, I was listening to a, um, I was listening to a podcast one time where they were talking about like sex offenders. Uh, it was, it was, as a matter of fact, it was, it was the in the dark podcast. They were covering the Jacob Wetterling case. And of course, Jacob's law, which was, you know, some of the, some of the pioneering legislation on, on sex offenders. Uh, and they were talking to, to people who were convicted sex offenders who, literally couldn't find anywhere to live there was no there were no like apartments or houses to to buy or to rent or anything in any i mean once you drew a circle like you know so many feet from a school so many feet from a park so many feet from a whatever you know once you you drew all those circles trying to find in the gaps the places that you could live was almost impossible and so we we let the sex offenders out of prison, and and they face that reality. We basically set them up to fail, right? We've we've made them register as a sex offender, and they have their crime on their record, which you know obviously is if they committed the crime, then you know that's that's something that they're just going to have to live with. But we put in place all these other things, and and supposedly it's about keeping the public safe from these people, but yet 
if they're that dangerous, I always wonder, why are we letting them out in the first place? Right. Well, and, and this guy, he had done this before, back in 2007. According yeah. to the Department of Corrections, he kidnapped a woman and uh, sexually assaulted her then. And yeah. So I mean, that was the reason why he was registered as a sex Right. Offender. Exactly. And, for doing this exact sort of crime. Yes. And it's looking like he was released back in June, not too long ago, and he did it just so quickly again. They yeah. wonder why was he let out when he was let out. You know, the thing is, is recidivism rates among sex offenders aren't as high as a lot of people think they are. They're, they're really not. And there's there's a whole that, that we don't have time to get into on this show. But there's a whole interesting debate to be had about that. But, I mean, generally, I think we need to do a better job of figuring out who we're going to – like, if they're so dangerous that you have to do all this stuff, they can't They got. They can't live here, they can't live there, they got to register, they got to call in, they got to update where they're living, they got to do all this stuff. If they're that dangerous, keep them in. Keep them in jail or keep them in treatment or do something to keep them out of the general populace. And if they're not that dangerous, they quit requiring them to do all this other stuff so that they can get back to living their lives – and and hopefully becoming uh, getting past their crimes that they paid their time in jail for and can become productive members of society again. I mean, that's to me, that's the important thing. I know Jay is going to be discussing it. I just wanted to weigh in a little bit because it's it's such an it's such an interesting thing, such an interesting part of our public policy. And it's I mean, politically, it's hard. Who wants to be the politician at this point to come out and say, no, no, I think it's a bad idea. Sex offender registries. Right. Which politician is going to do that? I mean, nobody's going to no, – no politician is going to no die on that hill. No right. One. Why would they? All right? I mean, there's not – It's. I think it's the right thing to do. I think actually – it's an excellent podcast, the In the Dark podcast particularly. I'm listening to right now. I'm, it's the Curtis Flowers case out of, out of Mississippi. But they did the Jacob Wetterling case. They did an excellent job on it. And they actually talked to Patty Wetterling about, like, like sort of the, the legacy of – Jacob's Law, which she obviously was was instrumental in in lobbying for, mm-hmm. um, she's not real happy with the legacy of what it's become. As, and as a matter of fact, a very interesting part of that is that originally Jacob's Law never intended for the sex offender registry to be public. Ben, really, it was, it was intended to be, to be a, like like an internal thing for law enforcement, okay, but not a public thing. And the reason why it became a public thing is because I think when they were in the process of lobbying for it and getting it through Congress, there was another case from another part of the country. And one of the things that the people from that case, it was another, I think it was another abduction case. I'm, I'm forgetting now. But one of the things that they wanted added to the legislation was making the registry public. And I think that's one of the biggest policy mistakes we've made probably over the last few decades is uh is making sex offender registries public i don't i don't know what we've accomplished with that um you know knowing 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 full well that like the convictions were always going to be public but anyway that discussion is going to continue with the on the jay thomas show straight ahead you can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m monday through friday on 970 wday am 93.1 fm thanks for listening we'll talk again